And uh, just a small note, I think Tom Brady would have taken the uh, Medal of Freedom. Four quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views, and overreactions to all things NFL. Our first batch of playoff games are in the bag, and it's time to chop them up and see where we're going next. So, hey, we got Connor here, we got Ronan, hello, and we got Sean, hello. How are we getting on, guys? How's all down in Cork? Uh, not much going on, really. Seems to definitely got to the point of remain calm and stay indoors. Yes, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't think our lives are going to be very interesting for the next few months. Although there's still some good football on. It's a little bit warmer than it was a week ago. So we had yeah. snow actually in Cork for the first time since snow in a while. Yeah, we had uh, snow we had the snow. last week, but none this week so far. We had a bit of ice this week. Yeah, we're getting back up yeah. to standard winter temperatures rather than the uh, freeze patch we had there for a little bit. Yeah, I think we got yeah. to like minus six or something in Dublin. Yeah, and look at what we're reduced to. That's how bad the, the lockdown is. We're all reduced <laughs> to talk about the weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not great now. I was say we got good football to watch, but uh, it's also kind of sad because we're coming to the tail end of the football as well. I suppose we should probably bust on into the news. Uh, we'll start with the coaching carousel as it keeps on trucking. Philadelphia, in I think, I think probably a surprise move to most people. Everyone was saying they're unhappy, but weren't expecting them to move this quickly. A fired head coach, Doug Pedersen. He's had five seasons with the team, won a Super Bowl, and his record was 42-37-1. The reports that are coming out on this are not necessarily that Philly were just getting rid of him. It's that Pedersen was very annoyed at being told what to do and wanted more autonomy in the role. Obviously, this comes after a very long and arduous season for the Eagles, where they had quarterback controversy Wentz playing terribly then going to Hertz and then that terrible like tanking a game approach and it it, let's be honest it's not a great roster they're working with in Philly either like I don't think it's a great spot to be in in the first place but I also don't think that Pedersen has done a great job the last year or two with it either but yeah so Philly up on the you know the hunt for a new head coach I can't imagine really, that this would be that attractive a place to be going to. No, this is a poison chalice. You're replacing a Super Bowl-winning coach. That's nearly always an impossible task, no matter where you go, even if he, the end of his tenure there wasn't great. And remember, he doesn't just have the, the five years there, really. He was also there under Andy Reid. So mm-hmm. he obviously has a lot more experience with the fans and the organization, which probably makes it even more surprising that it's ended in such... What well, doesn't sound very good terms at all. It sounds like the owner kind of wanted to have a sit down with him and basically go, okay, what are we going to do? Like something obviously went wrong this season. We need to rejuvenate here. What are we going to do? I think Pedersen from reports was kind of offering fairly, not small changes, but kind of moving most of the staff internally, not really looking at like getting a load of new people in. Uh, which is, which to be fair, isn't that surprising because so much of the Andy Reid tree has been picked over by this point. But apparently, you know, I assume Lurie and perhaps the, the GM, Harry Roseman, you know, they were looking for something more fundamental given the amount of issues that we had this year, especially in terms of the development of Carson Wentz. And uh, and obviously the relationship between Carson Wentz and Pedersen hasn't been too good by all reports. And so it just seems that Pedersen decided, like, I'm a Super Bowl winning coach. F you. Basically, you know, I'm getting the tenor of that's what's coming out of those type of meetings. And the owner's like... No, F you, I'm the owner. You know, this isn't going to work if you're not willing to, to face up to what you need to do 
to turn this team back around then goodbye and and fair so well so long and thanks for all you did and yeah you know this is an aging roster it's got cap issues when we're talking about the cap going down this year you obviously got the huge qb question about Wentz versus Hurts versus someone new um so yeah for me i wouldn't touch this job uh, unless you're someone who you know wouldn't get a job otherwise and yeah a very unusual end sean if you were looking at this and at what Doug has done in his tenure there. Like I said, look, he has won a Super Bowl. He finished with a winning record. And it's not been a winning cast of characters across the team. Would you, if you were a franchise, look at him and think, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd like to take another shot at him? Or is this a spot where you think he's going to have to drop back down to come back up? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you asked a question maybe two years ago, I think, you know, the, the GMs and the owners would be lining up. But I think... The last year, the, the, the kind of what happened with the Wentz controversy, the way he fell out with uh, his quarterback and then fell out with the owner. I mean, I, I think he comes across as, as perhaps a bit toxic himself now. Certainly the way it's ended in Philadelphia is not going to do him any favors. And the team has declined quite significantly in, in the three years since the, the, the Super Bowl yeah. win. They've really gone up and down based on the quality of their quarterback, which is not a good sign of, of coaching. Coaching tends to overcome deficiencies or maximize potential, but he doesn't seem to have done that. He seems to have ridden a particular wave on the back of a good quarterback and a very strong defense for a while, but that's all kind of fallen apart. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him um, if I was an owner in my organization. And I think it'll it maybe in a year or two, once this is all, I mean, certainly right now he, he's the kind of the, the, the stink on him is going to be pretty fierce, but maybe in a year or two, someone's going to get desperate enough because he does have the, the resume. You can say he does mm. have the Super Bowl, which, which will get him back in. Um, but I can't see it um, in off season coming that anyone will try and pick him up. He mightn't get picked up this off season, though. I think like the Jets, Joe Douglas, there's from the Philadelphia organization. There's already a few reports around that just due to obviously the so much, so many things have gone down in recent times that, yeah, there's a bit of issues over his temperament. Maybe he needs a year to, to, to clean up his thing. And like, to be fair to him, like, yeah, things within the organization, obviously, yeah, they didn't happy how they went, but they have been very unlucky with a lot of injuries, especially across their offensive line the last two seasons. It's, you know, things just haven't fallen their way. Which I suppose, given that things fell their way so spectacularly to win that Super Bowl, uh, you'd probably take it on balance. But uh, yeah, like I wouldn't be surprised to see him get higher, but maybe he's a better candidate to kind of take a year out, kind of recuperate his thing. And I think a Super Bowl winning coach will nearly always get a second chance. Yeah, of course. Uh, Houston decided to hire New England Director of Player Personnel Nick Casario as their GM. This is coming amidst a lot of rumours, and I think we got a question in from one of the listeners about this, about Watson being very unhappy, uh, as he wasn't consulted on this, even though he was promised that they would bring him in and consult on the hiring of the GM and head coach. And they also are not interviewing uh, Eric Bieniemy, which is someone that Watson and I believe Mahomes as well advocated for. And uh, yeah, Houston seem to be going down in flames very quickly. And for some reason, they seem to, after the other disgrace that B.O.B. had been for them running that GM position. They're going back to the well and taking another New England person to, to go in charge of that, which, let's be honest, has, I think, almost no... Like, there's no New England personnel that have gone elsewhere in the league and really set up shop fantastically well, is there? Uh, I mean, you can maybe make the case for uh, Brian Flores, but... Um, oh, yeah, Flores. I think is there, is, there is... There's definitely, when it comes to the New England coaching tree and, and the, the structure around them, you do wonder how much of it is just Belichick's genius and people hanging on to it versus independent 
talent there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of talent coming out of it so again i would worry about this what i mean hiring someone as gm when in reality the selection of personnel had had fallen in, in the hands of somebody else when he was uh, at his last organization is probably not a good idea certainly though i mean houston sounds like a dumpster fire at the moment with this i mean to piss off the one piece of talent that you have uh, your fa- your franchise quarterback just seems like a really stupid idea and is a recipe for him trying to find a way out via trade or whatever, at least at, at the very least him walking out once uh, he's able to in terms of contractual things down the line. This is just this is just a bad move all around. And I, and I think it's, it's a sign of, of the Texans going uh, kind of the downward trajectory uh, of the organization as a whole on the back of some, I mean, they made you know, high profile, terrible decisions uh, as well. So, yeah, it's not a good look uh, all around, um, I think, here. Yeah, like so the reports are like, you know, Watson when they traded uh, Hopkins last offseason, that was a two in terms of anger. And now he's at a 10 because he feels completely <laughs> disrespected by the owner, Cal McNair, who, to be honest, has a bit of a history of being a racist asshole anyway. So, you know, you wonder if there's some shit going on there. Maybe, like, maybe that's overreading into things. And I think, you know, there's also this whole subplot around the executive there, Jack Easterby, who, mm. uh, by some accounts and some reports, has been almost a Svengali Rasputin type character in, in the organization who, you know, despite the fact that he's been there through the entire Bill O'Brien saga, has now ended up being a, a person of, of, of very high importance to the owner, Cal McNair. And so there's a lot of reports about infighting and bitching and this, obviously, this Easterby character being a bit of a, a bit of a troublemaker. And of course, yeah, as, as Sean says, at the end of all this, you end up basically doing what you said, what, what you wanted to do last off season. And you're kind of going, was that the problem really? Like that you needed the New England guy to come in and help Bill O'Brien do more New England stuff. Like, you know, uh, you know, you never know. Obviously, you know, Nick Casario, the, the Patriots, they have had a, a, you know, a lot of success, but, you know, not necessarily on the personnel and drafting side, which they'll need to be really good at in this organization getting done. And yeah, I think, you know, you didn't even interview Benjamin just to keep Watson happy. You, you can't even call Watson now. He's not, you say, say, refusing your calls. This is just a complete fuck up. And as we always talk about in this podcast, you know, the worst thing that you can have for your team is a bad owner. And all of the signs here are this, that this comes from ownership. This comes from Cal there. And if, if this team takes another dumpster fire for another few seasons with Watson there, or if he gets traded away or forces a trade, it'll be squarely on the owner's shoulder. A couple of movements, lower down positions. Miami's offensive coordinator, Sean Gailey, has resigned after one season. They played kind of a big spread offense. It worked well for Fitzmagic. They were really not getting production out of Tua at all. I don't know whether this is a move to say, look, we're going to, focus on building around to in the future and they're going to lay it at the feet of the of the offensive scheme or whatever it's rare to just get one season particularly one which like overall Miami outperformed what any of us expected this season but yeah this is obviously a move with them with an eye on the future and an excuse for some of the let's say underperformance this season you know you saw the success of the offense relative to game with Fitz uh, Fitz had a previous relationship with Changeli. Maybe that's not too surprising, but it, w- it is kind of a, it was kind of you know he had been out of football for a few years. 
he kind of ran, I suppose, well, an old school spread offense with a lot less movement than, uh, you know, some of the more, you know, uh, modern uh, spread offenses at the college level. Much more like, you know, you're relying on the quarterback to do the, the thinking, to do the work. And I think you put in Tua, a guy who obviously has had a lot of disruption in his career in recent years. He's a first year player and it kind of seems that he's sunk under the weight of it a bit more. And when you're looking at other teams who have either immediately or subsequently, you know, put schemes around their first year quarterbacks to help them succeed, to kind of take the pressure off them. Maybe there's a situation where, you know, Brian Flores decided that this isn't the way to go to develop a young quarterback anymore. There are better templates all across the league and maybe he needs to get an OC who, who's more in line with what the league is doing these days with these young quarterbacks. And uh, Dallas have also decided to hire former Atlanta head coach Dan Quinn as their defensive coordinator. Mike Nolan was fired after one season for what was that uh, was another performance by the Dallas defense. Dan Quinn obviously had a decent tenure as Atlanta head coach. Got to that Super Bowl famously, you know, twenty-eight to three, and then fell from there. And they've never really quite shaken it. Maybe it's a good move for him to move back to a coordinator position. But I don't know because it's quite a like it's. A head coach of a team that were in a play in a Super Bowl far more recently than Dallas have <laughs> been. It seems like it seems like they're kind of going for prestige rather than I don't know how much actual defensive calling Dan Quinn has been doing of late because I know for a fact that the last four or five years of the Falcons have been watching a terrible defense. Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely feels this being Dallas, this being Jerry Jones, this is a name. This is this is Jones going, oh, I know this guy. I've heard of him and wasn't he good a few years ago and he'll uh, fix for me. There's just very little joined up thinking in, in the Cowboys in terms of their overall structure for a very long time. So this does feel like a little bit of a prestige decision. That said, Dan Quinn does have a history uh, as being good on the defensive end. And if you can get back to, you know, perhaps his, his first love, um, then maybe things can be better. Certainly, I... I I mean, he wasn't a terrible head coach. He didn't get them to almost winning a Super Bowl, but um, it certainly fell apart um, at the end. So, I mean, it's it's one I would be very skeptical about. I, I don't think the Cowboys generally make good decisions in this regard, and especially bringing in a big name. And you're going to have to deal with the various egos. Is he going to be willing to 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 be the kind of second fiddle and be be kind of uh, overruled in certain situations? So, who knows? I mean, I, it doesn't look from from here as being the best decision, but it has the potential to work out, I suppose. Yeah, and this is a well worn path for former head coaches to, to, to rehabilitate themselves. The only issue I really have is, you know, as you mentioned, there's Jerry Jones, the owner, and also just Mike McCarthy. It's already felt like a bit of like a reheated coaching staff, obviously with the exception being the, the Kellen Moore, who's kind of from the last coaching staff, maybe a bit more innovative there, potentially. But this, you know, I, I'm not sure that organization is the healthiest inside the room based on what we heard there. But, uh, you know, I hope maybe they can prove prove everyone wrong there. Um, you know, the Seattle defense to a certain extent maybe has been found out over recent years, at least its base iteration. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Dan Quinn can add the, uh, additions to that, that maybe Robert Sala has done in San Francisco to, to get it back to being a, you know, an effective defense in the league today. Yeah, and a final just a little note on COVID-19. There were cases this week in Tennessee and Cleveland, but there was no effect on the playoff scheduling. And uh, we will discuss some of the impact on like, you know, the Cleveland coaches not being there and stuff in the game when we get to the game preview section. Some injuries from around the league just on playoff teams. Buffalo running back Zach Moss has injured his ankle. He's done for the postseason. They've signed Devonta Freeman to their practice squad so he can act as kind of their additional backup running back for them. 
I don't know, does this impact heavily? Zach Moss was a good touchdown catcher and short yardage back for them, but the most recent weeks they've kind of gone away from the run as much. They've been a much more pass-heavy team. They've never been a very run-heavy team this year at all. He, Moss has, I think, had one game where he was kind of the standout player and, and not much else, so I can't see this being a huge impact. It takes away options, I suppose, which given that the Baltimore defense um, next week that they're playing have been kind of stepping up in the last few weeks could make it put more pressure on Allen. Um, but I mean, he's got enough on his shoulders already. So I can't see he's being, making a huge uh, impact. Singletary's still there on the roster and can handle a good bit of the load. It's just in case there's any injuries to them as well. Rams have continued quarterback issues. They haven't announced who the start is going to be because Jared Goff still got that thumb injury and John Walford was semi-decapitated by a Seahawks player during the game. That's so unfair. He has... His head was punched into his neck. Okay, That's completely sorry. different. Yeah, sorry, pop, 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 popped in, not popped off. Aaron Donald has a rib injury and Cooper Cup has a knee injury. They are all expected to play. Yeah, so this is, it's a banged up team. They like they need Aaron Donald to be at full force for this Cooper Cup. Uh, less so, because I think this Rams team, if they have a chance, we'll discuss in the previews, it's going to be on the defense, right? Yeah, I think he, Donald, it's like torn cartilage. I'm sure it'll be absolutely awful to play through, but you know, as I talk about the broadcast a lot, players will play through a lot when, when you know, there's a Super Bowl mm. on the line. And he's obviously a tough guy anyway. Cooper Cup, you're a bit more concerned because he had injuries in the past, but they say it's just a knee contusion and it'll be fine. And look, Jared Goff, he had a few wobblers there. So you have to be majorly concerned that in a if the defense can't do more heroics um, and he's expected to do more, that, that he won't be able to do so. But uh, yeah, I think the Rams... Overall, the offense, there's not really that much anyway. So, yeah, if Aaron Donald plays, that's the major thing for them if their defense can give them a shot. Yeah, we got uh, Tampa Bay have their running back, Ronald Jones, with a quad injury, so he's uncertain for the divisional round. And their guard, Alex Kappa, has an ankle injury, so he's definitely out for the divisional round. So I suppose this means leading on, like, Leonard Fournette, maybe. Is Sean McCoy still on that team? Yeah, but Fournette took the bell cow row on uh, wildcard weekend, so I'd expect mm. that they will put him out there again. He's had a very unusual season, Fournette, but in terms of his usage, like he was obviously, he was, uh, he was a healthy scratcher late on in the season, but yeah. I think if Rojo can't play, then he will probably be the starring back for them. And, you know, he's not the best, but he's not expected to be the, the bell. He's not, he's not the important part of that offense overall, uh, even if he, even if he is required to play. And Kappa, I think, is the right guard. So that's going to be, you know, obviously the 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 old the old adage about playing Tom Brady is pressure up the middle. So the loss of a guard is is, is a big hit, particularly if we can get some uh, some pressure up there. So we'll see how that goes for them. And finally, Cleveland offensive tackle Jack Conklin has injured his hamstring. Uh, Michael Dunn, the guard, has injured his calf, and quarterback Robert Jackson has done his hamstring. They're all day today, particularly Conklin and Dunn because they've already lost one of their offensive linemen already. And this is a very run-heavy team when uh, when they get to play the game that they want to play. So uh, you, you got to hope that both those guys are able to suit up. Robert Jackson, obviously. If they're playing the Chiefs, they want their cornerbacks at full strength. But I think getting that line in place to yeah. allow the run and to, to, to protect them from a couple of decent pass rushers in the Kansas City line to give them a good shot on the weekend. Conklin is a starter. He's been a great free agent pickup for them. He, he's been very effective. Uh, Dunn is more of a replacement. He was obviously brought in because Betonio couldn't play. Uh, I assume they're hoping to get Betonio and the rest of them back from COVID this week, unless there's been some complications. Um, so I don't think that should be major. I think Dunn literally... 
I think Baker was saying after the game, this guy came into the huddle and we didn't, we'd been introduced like a day, like a, a few hours late earlier. Um, so it's obviously not a, a long-term uh, player there. And Jackson has been picked upon uh, in recent weeks. But again, if they get Denzel Ward back, who missed the game, uh, then that's less of an issue. So I think of these three, Conklin is the only uh, bona fide starter, but he would be a major loss along the defensive line if he did miss the game. Yeah, the, the Cleveland O-line has been playing at, a, at an elite level these last few weeks, and these injuries have begun to hurt them a bit. Definitely in, in last week's game, and we can talk about it a bit more in, in the actual reviews, once they start to go down to their second and then third string O-line, their offensive productivity fell off a cliff uh, in, in the third and fourth quarter. So it's something that they want to get together. When they have their first choice kind of team, they're a very, very strong offensive line, but they, I don't think the backups are in, anywhere near the kind of level that there would be required to, say, fight off um, uh, a KC defense. Uh, uh, just a bit of breaking news while we're on the recording here. The Raiders have hired Gus Bradley to be their new defensive coordinator. So Gus Bradley, back in the league. Excellent. So, uh, <laughs> it's good. good day for Seattle uh, DCs, you know. Yeah, they're they're just, all getting just, back in the league. Just what we've been crying out for is uh, <laughs> Gus Bradley. Perfect. Uh, just for another injury to out of the playoffs, but obviously still relevant. Seattle safety Jamal Adams has a shoulder and finger surgery lined up. He's expected to be back for 2021, but while they traded for him, it was only a one-year contract, so there's negotiations to go into, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, the Seattle defense was obviously down for a lot of the year and then came on strong in the back half and we'll see how because they, they they gave up quite a decent amount was it the first round pick for him two two first round picks one this two year one next picks. year and like look he he is he's playing on the fifth year option this year or in 2021 but mm-hmm. obviously one of the reasons he left the jets is because they didn't want to pay him um so you can expect that jamal adams and contract negotiations will be uh back uh, annoying people like me, Seattle fans, uh, for the entire offseason. Um, and given his injury status and having these shoulder injuries and stuff like that, and he kind of played hurt this week, you know, that will only complicate things further in terms of his self value versus the value the market have. And uh, that's not even including stuff like lowering cap and stuff like that. So, yay, lots of offseason fun there for all. Fun times, fun times. Uh, so, interesting bit of signing use. Green Bay have signed offensive tackle Jared Valdir from the Indianapolis practice squad. So this means that he will, well, one, look good for good depth for them. They had an offensive tackle get injured in their final uh, practices a week and a half ago, I think it was. But mm. this would mean that Jared Valdir will become the first player to ever play for two different teams in the playoffs. Obviously, you know, this is COVID have extended the practice squad rules and this is someone who they had their eye on, I think. It's obviously that the fact that the practice squad is much more bendy this year in terms of who can be on it and stuff mm. like that. So you usually wouldn't expect a veteran tackle to kind of be put on a practice squad. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those situations where COVID kind of lets you bring these guys up and down way more often to kind of take these way easier. And yeah, so the whole thing's a lot more fluid than it would usually be. So this is probably something we won't ever see again, uh, hopefully, <laughs> that uh, you know, in the case where we don't have this kind of crap happening uh, yeah. in, the, in the near future. Crime and punishment, what are they doing? Apparently not felonies. Las Vegas running back Josh Jacobs has been charged with failure to exerc- ex- exercise due care. No DOI charge, etc. stemming from the uh, apparent motor racing 
uh, event that he was involved in uh, towards the Las Vegas airport last week. So uh, it would appear that his lawyer was correct to be uh, very boisterous about their chances of getting it thrown out. This has been downgraded <laughs> quite a lot. So yeah. Our, our, our client may be a speeder and reckless <laughs> and stuff, but he is not a drunkard. <laughs> <laughs> he is not a porn star. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well done, Josh Jacobs. You get away with it. We'll get you again. Controversy <laughs> Corner, Sean, your boy, Bill Belichick, has decided to refuse the Presidential Medal of Honor. Trump decided freedom. to... Op- or, or freedom. Sorry, <laughs> Medal of Honor is a different thing. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, freedom well, is Trump, for civilians. Yeah. Trump, tr- Trump might have a very, very vague grasp on what a patriot is. <laughs> so the Medal of Freedom, yeah, Trump decided to give it to him. I don't exactly know why. Was it just like, let's get any news story to change this? Pretty he's, much. He's, he's given he's, a few to some golfers last week, so I, I wouldn't read too much into it. He liked Bill Belichick and he thinks he's great. Okay. Uh, he Bill Belichick cited the Capitol riots as a reason that he wasn't going to take it. It's a, it's a bit late here in the day, Bill, to suddenly decide you don't like Donald Trump anymore. I mean, this is the same with a lot of like Republicans who suddenly turned, realized Donald Trump is a terrible person after he let his, uh, or encouraged his lunatic fans uh, to go loose in the capital. It's not the not the racism or not the courting of the far right or his policies of the problems. This was finally the last straw. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it is. I mean, it's honorable that he was willing to, to do it. Um, but this is very much seeing which way the wind was blowing. I think uh, the rumors are it's not going to do with the fact that his players um, were very unhappy about the fact that he was going to accept it and decided that he could do without having to deal with uh, a rebellious playing staff as much as uh, anything else. So, I mean, Belichick is, is he's a tactician to the end of the day. He, he's doing this because he realizes the smart move to do. He's not doing it because it's, it's the moral uh, decision to make. No, of course. Interesting enough, I was reading today that the, the PGA have taken a stronger stance on Trump. So yeah, they, 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 this, they, they took his PGA championship away. Yeah, they've, pulled, they, they've, they've pulled all of the PGA tours and championships away from Trump golf courses or something like that. Batting him. Good stuff. And uh, Indianapolis offensive tackle Anthony Costanzo has decided to retire after 10 seasons. What a pussy. 10 seasons. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he was, uh, he, he, like, this is the kind of, like, this is a good return on your first round pick, basically, because he's a first round pick for mm. the Colts. 10 years. Very solid tackle all the time. He's been dealing with some fairly severe injuries in more recent years. I think he kind of nearly retired a couple of seasons ago. But, yeah, solid servant for the team. And, uh, well, you know, hoping the best in his retirement. Uh, big hole for them to fill on Indianapolis. They're obviously a team that has built their identity around having a good offensive line, so they'll have something to do in the offseason there. I'm not going to say it's a culture problem, but that's uh, at least the second high-profile Indianapolis player to retire. So just I'd, uh, I'd keep an eye on that moving forward. Next up, we'll take a look at the games from last week. Okay, so first up, Indianapolis at Buffalo, 24-27. to Yeah, Indy ran this a bit closer than I was expecting. Rivers, 209 yards and two touchdowns. They left him in for the Hail Mary at the end where he didn't even, it would appear he didn't have the arm strength to actually make it to the end zone, which was, uh, which was a bit weird. Indianapolis had the, 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 the clock and that, but they were down at the half thanks to a couple of, you know, nice plays from, from Allen. Diggs had a big game over a hundred yards. Allen had three touchdowns. Uh, like it was just, it was, the Bills team didn't play fantastically well in this overall, but Allen played very well and kind of get them through it. Like the Indianapolis team played exactly like you would expect. They were okay, workmanlike and doing their thing, but had some like just little mistakes here and there. Like I, I, I agree with the team that won winning this, but I honestly 
got to the end of this game and I hadn't been massively impressed by either side, really. The only was, I thought Allen played well, but I don't think almost anyone else on the team did. Yeah, I think looking back at it rationally, uh, the Colts will think that this is the one that got away. They really should have won this game. They had numerous chances um, to, to get more points than they did. They had, a, I think, a, a fourth down failure in the red zone. They missed a field goal. They ended up losing. The Ultimately, the, the three-point difference was ended up being decided by a 54-yard field goal. And those don't go in um, all the time. So Indy can feel that they definitely put up a, a good shift and they, they definitely probably deserve to win. thought Rivers played better than I've seen him play in the last few weeks, um, but they are ultimately still not enough. The Bills get away. I, I think, I mean, some playoff nerves maybe. I mean, Allen, he played well, but then he almost completely blew the game wide open with a fumble late on um, when they were trying to run out the clock. Um, but the win is the main thing. It's their, their first playoff win in 25 years, which is, I think, about the same length of time that the Browns have been waiting um, to win a, a playoff game, uh, which is pretty great. I mean, the problems with the Bills, though, are on the defensive side. The defense gave up a ton of yards here. I, I think it was about 500 yards or something, or close to it uh, in total. So you'd worry about them against elite teams, that that might be the weak point here. That might be what in kind of playoff standard they're, they're probably not up to what they need to be and especially when you think about it, if they say if they get through the baltimore game and then run into kc in the afc championship game this defense is going to get absolutely um, obliterated i also think alan maybe needs to think a little bit about how the way he runs he got an awful lot of hits like really big hits in this game because he seems to he doesn't do the slide thing that quarterbacks are supposed to do. Kind of, you put everything on the line. He runs, Come on. <laughs> he runs, he, I just, I just don't think it's going to last very long if he runs like. At least Lamar Jackson is fast enough to get away from people trying to kill him, whereas Allen just seems to run into tacklers. Yeah, like look, like the Colts are a limited team. They have Philip Rivers at the twilight of his career. To be interested to see whether he chooses to come back. You know, I think he. He, I think they want to bring him back. Frank Reich seems positive about it, so it will be Philip Rivers' decision, which is saying something because, you know, he had a good game here, but I think you just see the limitations of having that kind of old-school quarterback who doesn't really have the same type of deep ball here. And like, as you say, like, you know, they kind of did everything right. They they controlled the clock, and they only just had a couple of small mistakes. You know, the fourth down conversion literally went off Michael Pittman's fingertips uh, but the difference is that if you're the Colts and you're doing this grindy, solid, efficient game plan, is that it has to go right. You know, you were you were across the 50 and every single drive you had, and you only have 24 points at the end of the game. That's not the sign of an offense that in the modern NFL can destroy teams and can kind of control games. And on the other side, you have the Buffalo Bills, who for all their flaws, and they certainly like to play dangerously here, as Sean mentioned, in terms of like the fumble and in terms of their defense kind of giving up in the fourth quarter when it seemed that they were about to run away with the game. But they have those special plays and all, and obviously they have Josh Allen, who, you know, certainly could probably take, so, you know, take less hits and stuff like that. But you see the throw, like the first touchdown throw he did, uh, I described it in the, chat that we had like almost a John Woo type throw where he's coming like jumping like sideways while throwing the ball that's the kind of stuff that you know in if you have a player like that that makes the difference in the playoffs and you know having a quarterback on the other side who can't throw a Hail Mary anymore that's the kind of stuff that makes a difference in the playoffs so look the Colts they're a solid team. They have a platform to make the, pla- the the playoffs certainly next year if they have Philip Rivers. But I just don't see them having a platform to win the Super Bowl with with Philip Rivers as a quarterback and with this roster as a whole. It's very effective. It gets the job done. 
but you see the difference that having an elite quarterback makes in this game and in a couple of other games that we had this weekend. So look for, you know, I'm not really sure where to go with them. Uh, I think, you know, you, you, if you want just playoff games, happy enough. But for the Bills, you know, they now have a chance to go all the way. They've been one of the most exciting teams down the stretch. And with Josh Allen, I think they can take it to anyone on any given Sunday. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I look at it and I see potential. I don't think they lived up to it uh, in this game, but you could see where if, if a couple of things broke the right way, they could they could go toe-to-toe with almost anyone. Next up, the Rams at the Seahawks. A tough one for you, Fitz. 30-20. to 20. The LA Rams defense just did a great job here. Touchdown, interception, forced fumble, five sacks, and like about 300 yards allowed. Wilson, like, I don't know what happened to Chef, Chef Russell, but he it's gone. 11 of 27 passes completed, 170 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. Like, it was something, but it wasn't enough to get much going in this. Uh, the Rams weren't great, but they started with their backup or their backup's backup. And then he got killed by Jamal Adams, as we said. He had his head popped in. And Goff came out with his broken thumb. Akers looked great on the ground. He had 131 yards. And he had a lovely little kind of toe tap along the sideline run to, to, to seal it out. But... Uh, yeah, look, this game seems almost indicative of what the back end of the Seahawks season has been. The offense stopped being explosive. The defense kind of slowed down a little bit as well. And the Rams, who we've said before, had they're competent. They're like a an Indianapolis with a better defense and a slightly less good offense. They're a competent, well-coached team, but they're not, you know, mind-blowing in any respect. But that competence and consistency was enough to to take on the Seattle team that seems to have fallen down on both sides of the ball. Yeah, like, look, if Philip Rivers was playing for the Rams, I would probably have them as a contender uh, for the Super Bowl because that defense is a genuinely dominant unit. We have seen it literally win games single-handedly when the offense did nothing um, and keep them in games that they had no right to be keeping in during the regular season. And so it came to be in this game as well, where, look, Seattle just seemed to come in a bit, like, you know, seemed to continue what they've had down the last half, even more of the season, where they just look a little undercooked, uh, like a little just soft, basically. And look, Wilson, the let Ross cook, cook thing worked for five games. And since then, apparently, uh, you know, a Tampa 2 is enough to basically throw the whole thing off and make the entire offense stink again. And, you know, Pete Carroll's already talking about we need to run the offense more. We need to run the ball more. Uh, and we need to, you know, force them to respect us and have to go back to single high safety. But, you know, if, if you're talking about something as simple as that, I know Carol's always been an execution over, you know, scheme type of coach, but it just seems that when you're looking on the other side with Sean McVeigh and obviously Brandon Staley brought in as a linebacker coach in Denver, you know, very little experience and he's brought this defense to the next level above a, you know, a hall, a hall of fame type defensive coordinator like Wade Phillips. You know, you're kind of going like that just feels like this team, the Rams have had so many things go wrong from the season and yet they're still winning a game like this. And like the defense was absolutely dominant. They were getting after Wilson again and again, even though Aaron Donald went off uh, early on in the second half, you know, he went off and still Russell Wilson was running for his life for the entire game. The touchdown, you know, on a wide receiver screen, A, that has to go on the Seattle offense. If you throw a pick on a wide receiver screen, then you are basically you must be sending like huge Las Vegas type signs saying we're doing a wide receiver screen please <laughs> take you know please challenge us at the line of scrimmage like there's and obviously that was in the context where DK Metcalf who was the uh, the, the intended target had been on the sideline throwing a big tantrum 
Um, another sign that, you know, Seattle, they've had all these tantrum issues, um, to, you know, over the recent years, mainly with the defense, but now DK is getting in there. And you're kind of going, like, you just got out coached there. You got out, you got outplayed, basically. And, you know, like, I think, you know, when that touchdown happened, I immediately went, like, this game is over. It's going to be a grim type of game, and maybe Wilson can turn it around. But based on what I've seen from Wilson against this Rams defense, I just didn't think it was going to happen and just turned into a slog of a game where, look, Jared Goff, fair play to him. He, he, he did the best. He, he stayed efficient. He didn't make any huge mistakes, which he has been prone to in recent weeks. And he got a touchdown late on to kill off the game. Uh, but you could tell that his thumb is not good. You saw several balls that came out with no velocity that were wobbling around. And really, the offense completely ran through the rookie Akers, who has been really good when he's been healthy. Over 100, like 131 yards, a touchdown. Um, it wasn't a dominant offense, even with those, but it was enough to keep them chugging along, keep getting points and put up the 30 in the end that that was more than enough to beat the Seattle team. So look at Seattle fan. It's very difficult to see where they're going. They don't really have many draft picks after, for, after trading for Jamal. You know, it's a team with a lot of veterans like Bobby Wagner and KG Ryder getting older. And obviously the, 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 the Russell Wilson, what's going to happen? How are they going to fix this type of situation? So even, you know, 12 and four, you win the division. But this happens again and you wonder whether Seattle, a bit like maybe the Colts, have they reached their ceiling? Are they ever going to challenge for that Super Bowl again? I think the Rams, given their offensive struggles, I don't really see them as a Super Bowl, contender, Super Bowl contender either. But that defense, you never know. You know, it can have these dominant games. Maybe it can, it can grind them way, grind them further into the off, in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the big story is this, how strong this Rams defense is looking right now. They're the number one defense in the league and they absolutely look like it. The loss of, if Donald isn't healthy for next week, it is a big loss. He is a monster player, but they were able to, even when he sat out parts of this game, to completely crush the, the Seahawks um, offense. So uh, even without Donald, that they look like a, a dangerous prospect. The question, as you rightly said, Fitz, is how far this team can actually go without a functional quarterback uh, under center. Turns out Jared Goff does have a level lower than his normal level. Um, <laughs> but he was just he was just very poor in this game whatsoever. And I, for one, am utterly disappointed we didn't get to see Johnny Hecker, the punter, uh, at quarterback uh, in this game. Because um, <laughs> after Wolford went down um, and Goff was in, Blake Bortles is inactive. So Hecker was the backup quarterback so i uh, we, we didn't get to see uh, a punter playing quarterback in a playoff game and for that uh, if they're that for that reason alone i think we should hate jared goff and um, for the rest of our lives in terms of seattle the offense the defense played well but just couldn't keep pace with what the Rams defense was doing the offense never got going there's only one really big kind of play one long throw into the end zone i do wonder though for the seahawks how much the lack of a home crowd was a big miss here. This was their first home playoff defeat in, I think, 11 games. And I think a lot of that may have come down to the fact that they didn't have the fans um, pushing them on. Certainly, it may have been more difficult for, for the Rams. The Rams felt very comfortable in this game. And maybe if the, if the crowd had been there on their back, that might not have been the case. But the Rams are going to cause Green Bay trouble next week. But yeah, it's hard to see them going too far um, if they don't get more offensive production out of what they have. The, the point about the crowd makes sense. It might have made the difference in the margins, but I think the fact that we saw these issues in Seattle offense basically manifest for many, mo- like a couple of months at this point gives me, is why I'm even more concerned than just what happened in this game. The Rams have a great defense, no doubt about that, but the Seattle offensive issues seem to run a bit deeper and they have a lot to figure out this offseason. Tampa Bay at Washington, 31 to 23. Tampa Bay keep Washington kind of at bay 
fairly handily. Brady is surging 81 yards and two touchdowns, and they tore up that secondary with uh, Evans getting about 120 yards, and the ground game looked good with Fournette, who came just short of 100 and got a touchdown with Rojo out, as we mentioned in the injury section. Interestingly, Washington kept themselves in the game till the end with Heineke, 350 yards, two touchdowns and interception, an incredible job diving for the pylon. Yeah, he did. He did really, really well, to be honest. So it's going to cause questions about quarterback uh, in Washington. Obviously, they had Smith there, but Smith is now up in the air about whether or not, you know, well, whether or not he should be playing, let alone whether he will be playing and so on. But like, this is a Tampa Bay team who looked pretty comfortable in this game, but weren't didn't feel like they were properly pushed. Their defense did an okay job. Like they stopped the run game pretty good, but like, there's only three sacks in this game for them. Like it was, I don't know, like is, I don't know if this is that they didn't need to do more against this Washington team or is this just, you know, this kind of the, 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 the waveform that is Tampa Bay of sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. It just depends on the week. I mean, I, I think, I think there is, there are lessons in this game that we can draw that we've been seeing throughout the kind of Tampa Bay's season. This, their defense is highly ranked and their run defense is the best in the league but their pass defense is not good at all and Heineke is just the latest mediocre quarterback to have a good game against them I mean he, he played well and he looked good and certainly probably looks more impressive than any of the other quarterbacks Smith aside that Washington have gone through this year um, but Heineke is, is it's a list this season that includes people uh, like Nick Foles and Jared Goff have had good games against them. So, so Tampa Bay's pass defense, a lot of problems that you would think in terms of that. That said, on the other side of the ball, the Tampa Bay offense has really got into groove. Tom Brady with another uh, amazing playoff performance. He really is a big game player. He really turns up when he needs, he's needed, and he's a real asset for the Bucks to have uh, in the playoffs. And they, they're definitely going to be a threat um, as long as he's playing at this level. It's interesting the way the offense has slowly evolved as the season has gone along, away from what Bruce Arians likes in terms of the explosiveness into what Brady wants. They were running a number of kind of two, three uh, tight ends sets in this game. Antonio Brown uh, is unfortunately playing quite well at the moment, is really linked in well with the system that Brady wants. So they're clicking on offense. They've got a good defensive, a good run defense, but their pass defense is is a lot of trouble. In terms of Washington, their own defense didn't really show up. It's quite disappointing. I think Chase Young may have been slightly injured at, at, at points in this game because he certainly didn't play that well. And although Heineke wasn't bad, it is kind of a shame that Smith couldn't play because he earned this. They are in this playoff spot because of what Alex Smith did, and he really did deserve that kind of send-off um, to this season. But it's difficult to know where they'll go forward. Heineke could be an option for a season to see how he works out. Um, certainly he's not as bad as other options that they, they've tried out. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, Washington, you know, the defense is there, so they do have something to work with, um, but still a lot of work to be done with that team going forward. For Tampa Bay, it's going to be interesting to see how far Brady and this offense can take them and whether or not this deep this passing defense can be exploited because they're going to start running into now everybody left in the NFC basically has a pretty good quarterback uh, under center except for the Rams so it's going to be quite difficult down the stretch um, if they can't get that pass defense up to scratch just 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 a note as well for Washington if anyone in the building is listening to us regardless of anything else you're having what you're going to call yourselves what your mascot will be stop referring to your pass rush as the maroon four it is a terrible nickname (laughs) (laughs) 
And look, like I think Sean said most of what, what, what we need needs to be said, but I think it is worth emphasizing this. This offense looks really, really good. And it looks like it's kind of, it's, it almost feels unique in today's NFL where you have so many young quarterbacks and play action orientated where it's all about kind of trying to take pressure off the quarterback and building around, like building it that way. And you see a Tom, a Tom Brady offense where it's one, two, three, throw, one, two, three, throw. He's, you know, he's reading the field immediately. He's making the read faster than, you know, the, the defense can get to him. And it basically completely neutralized the, the, the not maroon four, um, of Washington. Cause they don't have a great secondary, but they have that great pass rush, which has, like, has been very effective. But against Tom Brady, he was just, you know, he was just dicing and slicing them up so quickly that they never stood a chance. Um, and I think the only thing to say about Heineke is that, Yes, it would have been nice to see Alex Smith in there. He might have made me more efficient, mightn't have had the, the, the pick. But uh, I think, you know, Heineke, you did see the effect of being able to open up the offense, get some of those like big play players involved more, um, like Sims. So I think if you're a Washington fan, and some of the Washington fans have been complaining, I think we've talked about in this podcast about the dink and dunk that's come with Alex Smith. And obviously Alex Smith's not getting any younger. You do have to have questions of whether, you know, the Washington team, they have this great defense. Are they better to play it safe? Maybe like Indianapolis, go with the veteran, go with the kind of less, more limited players, they get older. Or do you try and get someone in who can basically get you to like what Lamar, uh, Mahomes, these type of guys are? I'm not sure Heineke is that player, but is it worth, you know, playing around with that and trying to get someone like that rather than taking a safe option with Smith? going forward. Baltimore, Tennessee, 20-13. to 13. Baltimore, they manage it uh, after a very slow start. They were uh, 10 to nothing down, and they went to 10-3, and then they managed to get a big stop on defense, and then it just kind of turned around from there. Lamar, 179 yards, an interception uh, on the passing, but then he had 136 yards on the ground with a rushing TD involving one that was, I think, about 50 yards and was very, very, very impressive to look at the speed he got up to. Uh, Baltimore defense just shut down Derrick Henry. He had like two yards of carry in this game. Tannehill didn't do much either, 171 and a touchdown. He had an interception which sealed the game caught by Peters, but that was entirely... I think I was chatting to you guys at the time, nothing to do with Peters. That, uh, not to disrespect Peters, but that was literally the guy who was meant to catch it fell on the route. So he just got thrown directly at Peters. Yeah, it was, it was very, very up and down from the, from the Tennessee, uh, wide receivers as well. It wasn't great, but Tennessee, you've got to look at this as one that got away from them. They were up in this game and Baltimore were just able to go, do you know what? We're going to adjust better than you have. Like this game was Tennessee being able to kind of do what they want on offense for the first two and a half, three drives, and then Baltimore adjusting how they were playing coverages, and then they just completely messed messed with the with with, with the passing game of uh of Tannehill. Uh, then Baltimore started to break things off in the offense. That said, they still only scored twenty points in this game. They still had to rely on rushing from their quarterback because they weren't getting it done elsewhere. I'm still not convinced of this Baltimore team at all. Their defense stepped up well to shut down Henry, but this is a team that doesn't threaten a wild pile outside of that, as we saw with what they did overall on offense. They scored, what, three points after the first quarter? Something like that? Yeah, but I think it's important to note, like, this is a, you know, these two teams have had history, 
and the way this game ended where the Baltimore players uh, started uh, celebrating quite visibly on the uh, Tennessee logo gives you an idea that neither of these teams are fans of each other. There's a lot of bad blood here. And for Baltimore, this was about exercising those demons, not just in the case of losing those two games, the playoffs last year and the regular season this year, but obviously that they went down 0-10 to 10 early on in this game um, after um, Lamar threw a bad pick on an outright and you kind of go oh shit here we go again you know Tennessee going to grind this clock out they're going to win this game you know they're going to frustrate Lamar all, all the game and it kind of felt like that for a little bit but then Lamar had as you said that kind of 50 uh, 50 plus rushing touchdown where he basically had a safety and just juked him you know to next week and I think from then Baltimore went like they got their feet back under them and I think Given, you know, what's happened with this team and the issues they've had when they're behind and particularly against Tennessee, I think that was such a huge turning point in this game that meant that they didn't get frustrated, that Lamar didn't have to start throwing the ball around willy nilly, which he, yeah, let's be honest, he is limited at and it, you know, it is a big issue there, but that just ignited them and they just seemed to gain in confidence from that point on, especially because obviously the defense was doing such a good job of basically completely neutralizing Henry and getting Tannehill to do the work. And look, Tannehill's had a pretty good season and he's been very good in Tennessee. But I think you saw that when Tennessee don't have a run game at all, the offense is a bit one-dimensional. Like AJ Brown is a great wide receiver. Corey Davis is probably was nicked up in this game, so maybe that didn't help either. Um, but you got to see when they have to go to a pass-first approach, when they were asked, like, you know, here, you know, we're doing defensive scheme where you should pass first that they just don't have the kind of efficient, effective, like West Coast type offense that usually goes with the, the run blocking scheme that they work with Arthur Smith, the OC, um, that that doesn't really work. Tannehill isn't really a grind them out, take what's there type of quarterback. He is in this offense, a big shot, big play quarterback because Henry's doing the grinding work. And just when that didn't happen and Baltimore knew that wasn't happening, it just felt that Tennessee, you know, they got up 0-10. I think they almost thought, well, you know, this is going the way all the other games are gone. I'm sure this doesn't go this way either. And when that didn't happen, you just slowly saw that Baltimore were taking this game away again and again and again. And it just kind of felt like a huge psychological win for the Baltimore Ravens, um, not just in this game over Tennessee, but going forward as well. Yes, you have to have concerns because Lamar can't throw it, you know, out outright, stuff like that. But, you know, I think when you're talking about a game of this importance to the team in terms of its psychology and getting past that, then I still wouldn't put it past them to be a major uh, factor going forward in the playoffs either. Yeah, this was a, a very interesting coaching um, game, kind of the proverbial chess match going on between Harbaugh and Rabel and their coordinators. And Tennessee kind of got off to a good start in terms of that. Their, their run defense, which is the stronger part of the Titans defense, was actually been able to, to kind of hold, serve um, against the Ravens and force Lamar into some pretty terrible passing decisions. His internet interception pass was just uh, just a very, very poor decision on his on his part. And on the other side of the ball, the, the Ravens were doing a good job of keeping Henry quiet, but the Titans were able to use the threat of Henry in terms of things like play action and, and kind of structural setup of plays to get their passing game going. But eventually the, the kind of momentum of that kind of kind of ran out, that eventually that strategy does require Henry to start becoming a, an actual threat on the ground at a certain point, uh, and the, the, that didn't happen, and so the Titans' play calling didn't really was it wasn't able to exploit the imbalance there as much as possible. They ended up sticking a bit too much toward the run, 
especially in short yardage situations, the default was always Henry will get us the, the two or three yards that were needed, which wasn't the case because the Ravens were doing such a good job of bottling it up. Uh, on, the, on the other side, then, eventually the Ravens were able to adjust. Lamar was able to get his explosive uh, running plays going, uh, and he is the kind of the X factor for the Ravens. He is the thing that, that points to the Ravens being able to go quite deep in these playoffs is the ability to break out those kinds of plays. So in terms of this chess match, it, it was it was kind of Bravel up early, and then Harbaugh turned it around, and that was ultimately enough that the, once Baltimore had made their adjustments, the, the Titans just didn't have the, the counter plays that were necessary to overcome them. And all credit to the Baltimore defense for being able to, to keep Derrick Henry this quiet. I mean, they they went after him and they kept him. That was 40 yards, I think, he got in the end, which is um, just amazing um, achievement. And if they can keep that up, if they can do that um, against Buffalo next week, then who knows how far this, this team can go if they can play uh, at this kind of level. If you want a, a symbol of what the game, what happened in the game psychologically, I think back to in the early in the fourth quarter when... Vrabel decided to punt it on fourth and two inside Baltimore territory. That kind of, to me, felt like, you know, an admittance that Baltimore were winning this game. Um, like, cause obviously you have Derrick Henry. That's a, you know, it's obviously a situation where the stats say you should go for it. I think that just like at the time, I just felt that was a pivotal moment in the game where you like Baltimore have turned this game around. They have dominated this game. They're going to win this. Um, I don't think Tennessee are coming back. And I think that's, that was, it's such a reverse from what we've seen in this matchup pretty recently. It was just, yeah, very important win for Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, Chicago, New Orleans, nine to 21. New Orleans finally put the game away. Breeze gets two touchdowns and 260 yards. Uh, used Thomas a good bit over 70 for him and Harris got 80. Kamara got like a yard short of 100 and a touchdown. So overall, good offensive production. I think they'd only had like 50 snaps or something all year when all three of them were on the field together. So that's, it's been nice to see them get all together again. Uh, Chicago, like... What what more can you ask of a team? Their defense did absolutely everything they could to keep them in this. Like, if you think of that New Orleans offense with the running back in there, with Thomas back, Breeze playing correctly, and to hold them to seven points and a half is remarkable. To hold them to two touchdowns into the fourth quarter is even more so. But Chicago couldn't get anything going on offense at all. They had a beautiful fake trick play thing that was <laughs> that made it all the way down to the end zone was a perfectly catchable ball and was dropped and from that point onwards they just seized up and nothing was happening Trubisky had shy of 200 yards like there was nothing there they had a big uh they had a they had a big ejection when Anthony Miller fell foul of Gardner Johnson who's now had two people ejected from games from punching him and had his own teammates suspended for punching him so I don't know what this guy talks about but apparently apparently the Bears had a meeting during the week coming into this to talk to all the receivers to talk about not getting caught up in his play and like Basically, a meeting to like stress: do not punch this man as much as you will want to punch <laughs> this man, which says a lot about how much headspace he's getting into them. When you have an actual meeting with your wide receiver room about it, he's but yeah, seminars also, or something on this. You know, he's obviously yeah. got that trash talking down to down to a T or something. Yeah, and the uh, there's uh, Jimmy Graham touchdown caught at the very end uh, in the dying seconds to give it a slightly more respectable looking uh, score line for Chicago. But basically, uh, I uh, love how he just uh, walked off the the field once he'd done that. Like that's it, my my, my job is done. That's it. Well, to be honest, like there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of talk <laughs> about. He said, "I'm again. done now." That like <laughs> that that might be it. And I like to be honest, that's a hell of a story to be able to say is like his retirement is to catch a one handed walk off touchdown in the playoffs and then just leave. 
But Mitch, um, Mitch, your Nickelodeon award. We need to give it yeah. to you. <laughs> so yeah, Mitch, Mitch Trubisky won the Nickelodeon MVP award uh, for a terrible performance here. New Orleans look good. Again, they didn't score as much as you'd like, but this Chicago defense was playing at its kind of top end level, uh, trying to give them a chance. But there was just, there was nothing happening with this offense. And the NFL only has itself to blame when in like, you know, five, 10 years, I don't know what age group actually watched Nickelodeon. I'm guessing it's like 10 year olds. Yeah, like, something like that. Yeah. It's so basically in 10 years time, whenever they are missing a chunk of like, people who would have previously watched football, it'll be because they put the fucking Chicago Bears on the television to 10-year-olds go like, look how fun this sport is, kids. Come watch it more. Like, it was a terrible choice of game for that. But uh, yeah, just bad performance from Chicago. Hopefully they will now make some changes. If you want to talk about the kind of the the introduction of the seventh seed uh, into the NFL... Uh, playoffs. The Indy Buffalo game is a good advertisement for why that's a good idea because sometimes the seventh seed would be of a, a good enough quality to create a good playoff game. But equally, there are times when the, the seventh seed is just not going to be good enough. And the problem in this game is the Chicago Bears are just not a playoff team and they just weren't able to be competitive throughout the stretch. I mean, the defense played well, they kept them in it for a while. But ultimately, you just get a sense that they were just kind of holding back the dam and eventually the dam would break. And when the Bears couldn't get anything done on the other side of the ball, it was inevitable that they were going um, to lose. Uh, in terms of the Bears' offense, there were—I mean, there was some nice throws by Trubisky, not just a trick play, but he had another big throw early on. But then he just kind of faded from the game completely, and they just were never going to score enough points to keep up. The Saints, again, they're not quite—I mean, they—they constantly looked like a team with great potential that has only really realized that potential maybe two or three times this year. They look very good on both sides of the ball. The talent level is very high. You would wonder about the execution. This is a game they should have blown out, but they didn't. Breeze looks nowhere near his old level, and you would worry about kind of putting the game on his shoulders in, in a tense playoff game um, late. So, I mean, the, the questions for New Orleans are going to be coming in the next few weeks against Tampa Bay and then uh, presumably uh, Green Bay can Breeze maintain himself in a quarterback battle, he may not be um, up to it. So not an awful lot, I think, we learned from this game that we didn't um, already know. I think in terms of Chicago, we knew they weren't good enough to be in the playoffs and that their offense was pretty terrible. In terms of New Orleans, we didn't learn anything that's given us a greater insight into how they're going to fare uh, next week uh, against the Bucks. Yeah, and uh, they played it close to their chest. I don't think they, you know, they, they have only, they've had only four games where Breeze, Thomas and Kamara have been together. I don't think they were going to you know, use up their playbook on a Chicago team that I think they felt they could, you know, get away with not necessarily putting too much of them, except for Taysom Hill, who, who seems to take forever to throw the ball. It looked like he was taking a, a javelin throw <laughs> with his... Uh, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> he had quite the wind-up there. And yeah, I think with Chicago, you just could see... I think they like I think if Chicago had scored that touchdown um, on the trick play, and, you know, I think maybe the game would have been different. Maybe New Orleans would have been more... Um, up front, but I just kind of felt like the light kind of fell from the eyes uh, of Trubisky when that happened and the entire Chicago team with that drop. And I just never felt like they recovered after that. Um, and I think New Orleans knew it. They knew it and they just kind of ground out into a fairly meaningless game overall. Um, I think New Orleans, like, you know, Drew Brees is playing hurt. That's certainly having an effect, but uh, I expect to see more from them. Um, next week uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Sean Payton getting the, uh, crayons out and having a bit more crack. Yeah, and then finally, Cleveland at Pittsburgh, our big game of the week, 48-27. Let's, Let's go, go. Browns. Uh, Pittsburgh, 
holy shit, like Pittsburgh just made a complete balls of this. I immediately had flashbacks to the Broncos Seahawks Super yeah. Bowl. Wasn't it where the opening snap also was yeah, uh, yeah. was bungled? So Pittsburgh basically spotted Cleveland twenty eight points. It was twenty eight to nothing in the first quarter after a fumble, two interceptions. Cleveland just wouldn't give up the game, even though they let they let Pittsburgh back into it a little bit there. I think they. You know they kept them only, at a distance, only and then, because it's Cleveland, and we're all like, "Oh, they're not going to fuck this up, are they?" I think if it was if the score <laughs> had been reversed, we would have been like, "This was a blowout." But because it was Cleveland, we're all like, oh, "Not sure." I don't know. I don't know because, like, bear, bear, bear in mind that, like, you know, the Chiefs have come back from big deficits in games. Like these things do happen, and we've also lost big deficits. We had a we, we we've lost nearly a deficit of this high beforehand and so these things do happen big ben put up a load of volume stats 500 yards four touchdowns but he also threw four picks him and the center just weren't on the same page they had a couple of mistakes the run game didn't exist this top end defense baker mayfield had a great day with it three touchdowns 260 yards chubb and Hunt combined for over 200 yards and three touchdowns. Landry had nearly 100 and a touchdown. The Browns were just rolling on this. And this Pittsburgh team, even though they made it up at certain points, it never felt like they were truly threatening to, to, to take the game away. Like Cleveland felt in control. I'm sure for the Cleveland fans watching it, it was a lot more stress-inducing. I've been there myself. But uh, yeah, this Pittsburgh team showed all the flaws they had beforehand. Yeah, it's just not great and what in theory should be probably Big Ben's last game, but given the bizarre contract that the Steelers have with him, where next year he's due $41.5 million, and if they cut him, he still costs them $22 million. I don't even know what they're going to do with that. Yeah, well, uh, considering the self-harming they did in this game, uh, that, that, that isn't too surprising, I suppose, that they're self-harming in the cap as well. But like, mm. look, like this was a game that Pittsburgh... Like let, let's let's be honest, Pittsburgh, you know, shot themselves in the foot many, many times. First snap over his head, as you say, very reminiscent of that uh, Denver Seattle game. The Cleveland fall in it, touchdown. Couldn't ask for an easier, nicer way to begin the game for Cleveland to settle those nerves. Then you had two more interceptions early on in this game in the first half, um, and Cleveland took advantage of them and they scored, you know, two touchdowns and they got one, you know, touchdown on a regular uh, drive and um, that, that Pittsburgh punted it away. And so you get this 28 to 0 first quarter lead. You have control of this game. You have some injuries around defensive line. That certainly is a, is a worry. Uh, and you kind of slow down. But, you know, when you're 28 nil up and you're the Cleveland Browns, I don't blame you for necessarily being a bit more conservative, running the ball more and doing that. Um, but to be honest, even when they were in that situation, they didn't go completely away from the pass. They didn't go completely within their shell. Baker Mayfield in this game was allowed to quarterback them. He was allowed to pass the ball a fair amount. And he did a very effective job with that, um, particularly with the running backs and with uh, with Landry. But I think you saw Austin Hooper was kind of like almost like the uh, chain mover, getting those very those third down conversions, uh, those kind of short yarded situations um, that were important to just kind of keep their nerves under control. And I think, you know, when you're talking about this Pittsburgh team, it was all about the defense. This is the best defense in the league, all that kind of stuff. I know, Connor, you haven't necessarily been on that train all the time, but this has been talked up as an elite defense. And they've had a couple of injuries, but, you know, they still have TJ Watt and all these other names that they have. But, you know, what you saw 
in the first quarter and in the fourth quarter when Cleveland managed to put this game away for good. It's just a series of mazy runs where Chubb and Hunt and Landry were just running around them, making them look like idiots. Um, that fourth quarter touchdown, the Chubb in particular, they just like, they just looked like, like, I don't know, the Jacksonville defense in those situations. So even though they had this kind of firmed up for maybe the, the middle half of this game, in those first and third, like in that fourth quarter, they just, uh, in, in the first quarter and the fourth quarter, they just looked like a, a bad defense overall. And Cleveland just looked like a better team. And overall, on the balance of it, there's no way that Cleveland shouldn't have won this game. And, you know, uh, for Cleveland, uh, I'm not sure you can replicate the things that allowed you to settle your nerves here, but I think you've done enough. You've slayed the dragon. You've won the game. You've beaten your divisional rival. And now you're basically playing with house money down the stretch. So I hope that they open up, they keep things going and, you know, give a good fight of it all the way uh, for however long they can stay in the playoffs. And, you know, it just feels good, man. Like, go on, Cleveland. Fair play. Like, happy days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a free play for for Cleveland now. This is already the best season that they've had since the the, the AFL NFL merger in the early seventies. Um, so yeah, just just go nuts with it. I mean, what a start! I mean, twenty eight nil up at the end of the first quarter. It has to be the best individual quarter in Browns history. I mean, I don't think they're ever going to to replicate that. It is actually statistically the best first quarter in NFL playoff history. No team has ever scored. 28 points in the first quarter. I mean, you could expect as what happened is they got a little bit nervous, a little bit more conservative after that. The injuries in the O-line weakened their offensive productivity a little bit. They began to step off a bit in terms of the offense. There was also some risky decisions being made on the defensive side with this kind of big lead and the, the fear of what happened last week when, when Mason Rudolph killed them with lots of long throws. They decided to play very soft, decided to give Pittsburgh all that they really wanted in terms of short and medium yardage passes, but not to be beaten in, in the kind of big throws. The problem with that strategy is that the secondary just wasn't up to the task of stopping uh, Juju and Claypool from doing what they wanted to do. So Pittsburgh ended up getting a, a lot of points and were fighting in this game. And there was a point in the middle of the third quarter when, I mean, I, I've kind of gotten the behind the Browns a little bit this year, as, as has been obvious. Um, and I was shitting the bed of it. I was like, this is, this is, this is a disaster. This is the most Browns thing that's ever happened that they're going to throw this game away. But all credit to them. They, they responded in terms of the psychological battle very well when it was necessary. When Pittsburgh got their t- TD at the end of the first half, the Browns instantly responded with a t- touchdown of their own. When they were getting, when P- Pittsburgh got to it in, I think 11 at some, I think they were 11 down at one point. The, the the Browns went on this huge time-killing drive in the fourth quarter, I think six or seven minutes taken off the clock in the fourth quarter with a field goal at the end to just push themselves just that little bit further um, away. We knew it was never going to be easy, but this is a huge win uh, and all credit to the, the Browns to do this without your um, head coach, without your uh, a number of other uh, coaches, to redesign your entire offensive line without your um, offensive line coach or the deputy offensive line coach um, being available. I mean, really incredible displays. I don't want to talk too much about Pittsburgh because fuck them. But uh, yeah, four <laughs> interceptions for, for Big Ben. I mean, that's that's not a good look. And you would wonder what's going to happen down the stretch with this team because they've blown an 11-0 season has just been blown to bits where they've had basically six back-to-back terrible performances save for one half against the Colts where they pulled out. And if it wasn't for that one half, they would have lost six consecutive games. 
And so, yeah, for Pittsburgh, a lot of work ahead. But for Cleveland, let the Cleveland train roll on. Let's see what KC can do uh, against this kind of momentum and history. No, of course. And we'll move on from there and have a look at some of the questions from you, the listener. So first up, following on from that uh, Pittsburgh kind of collapse question, uh, this one is being, I think I've seen it discussed online a couple of places. This one came in and said, is Tomlin overrated? He has three playoff wins in the last 10 years, and he's had Pro Bowl players throughout the roster throughout his tender. Not saying he's bad, but maybe he's overrated. Okay, so this is obviously off the back of the bad performance from the Steelers team, the fact that they've crashed out of the playoffs a number of times now. Uh, as they say there, three three playoff wins in 10 years. And over that period, we've had Ben Roethlisberger, who's probably Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame level, multiple Pro Bowl and all Pro level wide receivers, uh, tight ends, like they've even had good defensive players and all that kind of stuff. That said, Tomlin has a very good overall record, 145-78-1. Never had worse than an 8-8 eight eight season. He's 8-8 eight and eight overall for the postseason. Uh, he's had seven AFC North titles, one Super Bowl. They've been to the playoffs nine times, but five of those times they were just one and done. They never made it any further. I suppose the first part of this is where, where do we rank Tomlin? I mean... I, I think the the stats kind of bear it out a certain narrative that we can kind of get behind. This this he is a very good coach. I mean, I think you do need to preface by saying that the organization that Steelers have, this is a well this is a well managed organization with a good structure that they like to keep head coaches along for a long time to give them the time to build. I think he's only the, the third head coach in the last I think thirty years or something ridiculous that the Steelers have had. He's been given the time. He was a very young coach when he came in i think he was 34 when he came in so he's been back from the very beginning the regular season record they, they kind of they've won two-thirds of their regular season games they've never had a losing season they've won seven divisional titles in 14 years all that says that he must be a good coach on some level but the postseason record for that for that kind of a regular season performance the postseason record is not anything to to kind of write home about to be Eight and eight in terms of the postseason, and for me, this was the that was a stat that really stood out to me when I saw it. I saw it a couple of times, I think, during the uh, the Browns game, where it was like this guy is is you know everyone well respected. He's been in the job for uh, uh, fourteen years. Everyone thinks highly of him, and yet and yet they've lost as many games in the postseason as they've won. There's only one Super Bowl behind uh, a Roethlisberger led offense, which has had great running backs. Um, which has had recently great defenses. So there are questions there. So I think he's he's a very good coach, but he may not be elite because I think when push comes to shove, his teams don't have the kind of record and the kind of performances you would expect of them. And certainly the situation where the playoffs, they've lost, I think, at least three home playoff games in kind of the first, the first either the wild card or divisional round that they've crashed out in. And that's that's not a good look either. Um, so for me, I think he's he's very good. Um, but I would worry about him in terms of elite status. I don't think he's in the Balachik, Andy Reid. I don't think he's anywhere near that kind of tier, certainly. Be, and I think the postseason record speaks to that to the kind of difference in that kind of quality. Yeah, no, I I, I kind of agree. I think he is good. That's the thing. is like I don't think he's that kind of top five, top ten of all time kind of group that I think a lot of Steelers fans maybe have got a bit of a reputation for claiming. The regular season stuff is very good. They have had a very high quality of team, but that also is to do with the coaching. Like they have coaching and the personnel management and having that pipeline of always having good wide receivers and everything in there. Like the 
the season, the regular season record probably is assisted by the fact that they had. And let, let, let's be honest, this is not unkind to these teams. The Bengals and the Browns have been basically four free wins every year for them for well, his entire no, tenure. <laughs> like I, I, I do. I, like if Bill Belichick's on his own plane, okay, we can all accept that. But if you're talking about Andy Reid level coaches being elite, I think Tomlin deserves to be on that plane of eliteness, like with the Pete Carrolls and and stuff like that. I think, like, look, it's incredibly difficult to keep winning season after season. The NFL is specifically designed not to allow that. And, you know, this is a, this is a coach who's managed to keep doing that. And, you know, when you're in that situation, you're not getting like elite talents just walking in the door with the number one or number two overall pick. That shit just isn't happening for you. And I think when you look at his resume, it's hard. You know, he had the Super Bowl. He ha- he's had these titles. And I think, you know, the Cincinnati Bengals, they've been very hard playing team for a significant period of its time in the AFC North. Um, obviously, the Baltimore Ravens have been consistently great alongside them, and they've still won all those divisions. Like, I just kind of go, like, if we're, like, unless you're comparing against Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin is one of the best coaches in the league right now and deserves to be considered among the best coaches in the NF- in NFL history. Uh, I think, you know, if I had two knocks against them, I do think that one, um, I'm not sure that they're necessarily... Like they're definitely more of an execution than a, a a kind of a system type of team. They're a team that you know, which, which is why they get consistent success because they focus on executing the game plan and necessarily being, you know, let's have the next super innovation of whatever the next uh, ten years are, like a Shanahan and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing is just like the, the, like I do think the culture in the team has sometimes been a little bit toxic. I know that's part of the Steelers thing of being bastards. And why we all hate them, but I do sometimes think that has come against them when the when the chips have been down and they've been forced into tough situations and beaten up that they haven't necessarily turned that around and become a better team because of it. Even like in recent weeks, we had Juju saying, "You know, Browns is the Browns," and you know Claypool after the game saying that the Browns are going to clapped out by KC. That like I think Tomlin to some extent, you know, given everything he's done, as I say, you know, he, he doesn't need to listen to some white ass boy like me like whatever the hell I have to say but like it does sometimes feel like the team you know they kind of sniff their own farts a bit sometimes sometimes and maybe you could work a little bit on that but based on his resume based on what he's done winning playoff games winning Super Bowls is incredibly hard so unless we're judging everyone's against they're not Bill Belichick he deserves to be considered elite and certainly not overrated fair enough fair enough I would say the way you described him there is too much I would say that's overrating him but fair enough. <laughs> uh, next up, we had another question is, is there a trade you would make for Deshaun Watson? If not, can they salvage a team around him from what's left? So obviously Deshaun Watson, we mentioned in the news, is annoyed with the Houston Texans, has been talking about agitating for a trade, has been talking about potentially holding out and things like that. The current rumor that's doing the round is that he's expressed an interest in going to Miami and that the payoff would be Tua, so a first-round pick quarterback from the season just gone a first round pick for this year and subsequent uh, picks in subsequent years from Miami. Like um, that, that trade is dirty because that's given, you're giving them their pick back, you know, like that's, you're, yeah. Cause that's, that's a pick that you sent to them that <laughs> you're going to give back. I like, like to be clear, I still think Miami should do that in a heartbeat. Deshaun Watson. Oh, actually was, no, 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 no. You send your, you give your trade, you keep their pick cause their pick is higher and you send no, them. Like you'd have, there's no way that you would get Watson. <laughs> Without giving them the uh, higher of the hurdle. two firsts, yeah, you you know, like and like I would do that in a heartbeat because we know that the Sean Watson is an elite level quarterback. He is a 
you know, he's not a trailer. This is a guy who is able to carry an entire team on his back and lead them to wins that they have no right to, to considering how bad their defense is and how, you know, riddled with holes the offense was. Deshaun Watson is a generational player. He has shown that over his career. So if you can get Deshaun Watson for anything except for like two whole draft classes, hell yeah, sign me up for that. Uh, as long as you're not like a Jets or Jacksonville type team uh, who have no like the, no talent on them. Miami have plenty of talent. They've been stocking up for two years. If I was Miami, I would do this in a heartbeat. Get me Deshaun Watson. Goodbye to uh, let's go win a ring. So what do you what what what? But what do you think that the uh... I would give up the two first this year and a first next year plus okay. two to get Deshaun Watson. I don't think you would have to do that, but I would be willing to do that to get Deshaun Watson on my team. Okay, even with the presumably it's what he's being paid 40 million and stuff but yeah like i says you've got, got so many rookies you've got a cheap roster anyway yeah they've got so many rookies right now they're gonna have two or three years they can sort that stuff out and the cap will probably be going back up at that point like for watson i'd do anything to get watson on my team yeah fair enough what do you reckon yeah, Sean? It, it, it sounds to me like this kind of trade would be kind of a win-win to a certain extent for both sides um the Dolphins would get a, a QB who's ready to go now, and with the defense and the coaches that they have, that would make them extremely competitive straight away. On the other side, the Texans do need to rebuild. Someone like Tua could probably use a few years out of the limelight in a, in a, in a mediocre-to-bad team learning his trade because I think at the moment he looks a little bit not up to scratch under, under the, the spotlight. So you put Tua in a situation where you have loads of picks coming in uh, or you get loads of picks that you've given away and you get them back and you kind of build a team around them makes sense from a Houston point of view and Miami would get a, a kind of a, a superstar to, to lead their team straight away. So I think that would make sense. I think Watson has to get away. Somehow he has to get out of this situation because Houston are going absolutely nowhere um, for a very long time. It's not just the the last the lack of playing talent around them. It's also from the sounds of it is the... The, the mess of the organizational and management structure. I mean, it, it sounds like it's not a place you want to be working, especially since they seem to have no respect for him as a as a player and a, as a talent. Can they salvage the team out of what's left? Not very likely with very with almost zero first-round picks for the next few years uh, and uh, not a lot of high-talent base to work off in terms mm. of signing players. And, I mean, you can't, bring players in a free agency if they don't have, believe there's a team that's worthwhile that they're going to come to. So you're not going to be fighting at the top end of the market for the types of players that Sean wants and what wants. So I think for the Texans and Watson, I think they need to realize this this marriage is over and it's time for both parties to move on. And this does seem like the, the best option on the table. And certainly I think both, both teams should be grabbing this if this is what's available. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd say um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because obviously... The more annoyed and the more, you know, hold hold out and stuff that Deshaun Watson appears, the less the actual market value is going to be because, you know, as we said, I, I, I kind of agree with you, Ronan. I think you'd be kind of, you'd be smart to just go, okay, three first rounders for him if you can get I, it done this year, I, next year. I think it's still, I think you're, if you're the Houston Texans and the GM and whoever the coach is, I, I still think you're, you're basically, you're, 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 you're killing yourself. You're, you're never going to live this down because the show oh, yeah, yeah. is going to absolutely dominate in, in Miami. I know you're stuck in a, in a, in a hole and that there seems to be no way out, but as long as, as long as you have the Sean Watson, there is always hope. And, you know, to, uh, you know, like Sean says, he could have a nicer time. I think if he comes in and replaces Watson, he's going to get absolutely killed because he's, you know, Deshaun Watson's been doing 
so much for that team. Like you know, like just like just think, you know, Connor, you're 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 a Chiefs fan. Like just imagine how much would you need to trade Patrick Mahomes away? Would you take three first round picks? Hell no. no. You would like need four, five. You need like you know, like first yeah. round picks for the next decade. To even think about it. And I think Deshaun Watson. Uh, is very much at the at the Patrick Mahomes level. You should not trade him unless you're a dumb team. No matter how big your hole is, it doesn't matter if you go zero and sixteen next year. You should not trade John Sean Watson um, unless he literally forces you to by uh, you know holding out whatever like that. Yeah. Um, maybe may, like the players have a lot of influence that maybe he can force it to happen. But I wouldn't do it for any price if I was a GM of this team. Miami. Maybe just have enough ammunition to force this through if Watson is really serious about pushing the envelope. But, uh, he, he, like, just, if Watson wants out, he's gonna have to do a lot of work to force this. Cause the, I think everyone on that, in the organization, the coach and the GM would, you know, they, they are signing their own debt warrant if they, they trade him away. No, of course. Oh, well, look, I'm sure we'll follow up more on this as more rumors come out. And um, we'll move on and have a look at the picks for the upcoming divisional round. <laughs> Okay, first up, the Rams at Green Bay. Green Bay coming off the bye. Rams coming off dominant defensive performance, but with question marks around who'll be starting a quarterback for them. Yeah, this should be an ex- this should be an interesting one. We've all picked Green Bay initially. Obviously, look high firing offense uh, at the moment when we saw them last. Their defense has improved. They've had the run game working quite well for them. But as we mentioned multiple times throughout the year, even though this is a team that won a lot of games, they struggled when they came up against teams that would smack them in the mouth. They don't like hard-hitting defenses. They've struggled against that a couple of times. Uh, Even in games where they've gotten past them, they have stumbled quite a bit against them. This is an LA Rams team with a very powerful pass rush. They have... Like this, this season has basically, for the most part, been Rodgers going to one target, and they have the cornerback to go one on one against your wide receiver one and make you go to the next option. This is a, this is a defense that matches up well to try and take on Green Bay, particularly if Green Bay are playing a more finesse game. But I still find it hard to look past Aaron Rodgers in this current form, coming off a bye at home. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think we said, like, a bit like the, the Bears, maybe if they, the defense can really get after Rodgers and the offense can just do enough that maybe there's a situation where you could, um, see the Packers getting a smack in the mouth. I think the teams that have successfully done that in the recent years, like San Francisco back in the playoffs, they had a, a functional, uh, offense. And while I think Cam Akers, did really well against Seattle. I think, you know, the, the, the Packers will be aware of that. They'll do everything they can. And of course, this is taking, this is taking a place in Lambeau Field in probably like minus four Celsius degrees or something ridiculous like that. It's going to be a tundra out there, something that the Rams just aren't used to. They're in a dome right now. They were previously in, you know, sunny LA. You know, this isn't something that they deal with very often in the NFC West. And now they're going to go to one of the toughest play places to play in, in the thing. And we saw, say, Tennessee a few weeks ago. They got absolutely frozen out of it as Green Bay are just, you know, used to this shit, basically. So I just, I yeah, I, I think, you know, the Rams have a simulacrum of the formula required to beat Green Bay. They can run the ball pretty well. They do have a very good defense. But just the, the quarterback situation is so uncertain. Jared Goff was bad enough in, you know, not great conditions in Seattle, but not the worst conditions that, you know, you're 
your thumb was, you know, has pins in it, was stuck back in a few weeks ago, you're now going into like minus something degrees. How much worse are you going to get because of that? And just because of that, it's just really hard to see in the putting enough offense to uh, keep the Packers in check. Um, never say never, but uh, I just feel like that quarterback issue is just too much for the Rams to overcome here. Uh, unless, you know, Aaron Rodgers starts throwing a load of picks that he just hasn't been doing this year. Yeah, I, I think Fitz nails it here. It's going to be a tough game. I think the Packers are, are going to struggle a little bit against this defense, but ultimately they're still going to score enough points regardless. Even if you if you take this Green Bay offense down to 60%, that's still with Rodgers in the form he's in. They're, they're probably still going to be able to rack up maybe 24, 27, 30 points, and I just don't see the Rams being able to score enough on the other side, especially when you consider the weather conditions. I mean, if you think it's hard throwing uh, with, with, a, with a broken t- thumb in normal conditions, try doing it uh, in the extreme cold. Like, I mean, it just it would be impossible. So the Rams, I think, will fight this and it'll be an ugly game. But ultimately, I just can't see the Rams scoring enough to be able to, to actually win the game at the end of the day. Yep, I agree with you all there. Next up, Baltimore at Buffalo. Uh, we've gone for Buffalo across the board on this one. Baltimore coming off their kind of resurgent, as you said, important win, both psychologically and just they, you know, they seem to be back into form a bit. Buffalo coming off a less strong performance, but one that they won and one that they would hope to be able to build off. Yeah, I think it's going to be a tight, a tight game. And certainly we have every reason to think that Baltimore can win this. They they do have an offense that is firing on all cylinders. Their defense has stepped up in recent weeks and is looking good. They have that mysterious quality known as momentum, which um, teams tend to kind of get behind in the playoff situation. And certainly Buffalo, there were weaknesses and there were deficiencies in that Buffalo performance against the Colts especially on the defensive end, that would worry you if you are a, a Bills fan. That said, I, I'm still inclined to think that the the Josh Allen factor, Allen and Diggs, they're, they're going to be able to, to get things going. I think it could end up being quite a high-scoring game um, at the end. I wouldn't be surprised to see it go either way, but but I do think that the, the Bills have enough in them um, to pull this out, especially with, with home field, um, even though the you know home field advantage doesn't matter that much these days. Uh, given the, the lack of fans uh, and the such like. Yeah, like I think, you know, you saw even in a Tennessee game early on, the Tennessee were having some success in the passing game. And that was really with A.J. Brown, who's been hurt all year, though still effective, um, with Curry Davis also been hurt. But I just think, you know, we've seen from Buffalo, this pass game is so dynamic. The changes that Josh Allen has made th- this year in terms of his ability in the passing game, his increased accuracy, his ability to both, you know, move the chains with Cole Beasley, um, but also to have those explosive plays with Diggs and Brown. It's just it's just such a dynamic passing offense. It's a completely different level to what Baltimore faced against Tennessee. And obviously Buffalo, their defense um, has toughened up a significant amount compared um, to where it was earlier in the season. Like You have to be a bit worried because they had that kind of late collapse against Indianapolis, uh, like somewhat against the run game. Uh, but mostly on the kind of short screens and stuff, which is, you know Baltimore also pretty good at. But I do think that Buffalo just have that they have that sense of a team that is playing freely. They're playing explosively, and you know, you know, both, you know, you know, when you consider where um, we consider Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson at the start of the career, it's obviously Lamar is still a way more explosive player with his feet than Josh Allen will ever be. But the way that Josh Allen has elevated his game to being a pocket quarterback 
who can make those plays as well as continuing to have that ability to make plays outside the pocket, make extreme throws off his back foot and stuff like that. I just kind of feel like Buffalo have something there that's really special right now and that can compete with anyone in the league. Um, so I think Baltimore, if they want to win this, they're going to have to get the Josh Allen very quickly, pressure him a lot, kind of get it going that way. And I just, I don't, I just don't see on their defensive front that they've been good enough to do that. And I just see in their secondary, I can see Marcus Peters being a little bit hungry going, yeah, this Josh Allen, he's not so good and getting burned a few times by Stefan Diggs and giving up a few too many big plays and Buffalo can get this done at home. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a close game. It's very interesting. I just think Buffalo have that more complete multifaceted offense that Baltimore maybe just lack, particularly even I know they came back this week, but when they're in a hole, you just can't quite trust it to be consistently getting them back into games. Yeah, and I think particularly the fact that the Buffalo offense, which probably, say, last year would have been a lot more run-dependent to get it going, it doesn't have the same... It, 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 it doesn't need the run game the same way the Tennessee one does. So I just kind of feel that they will be able to, even if Baltimore are able to lock down on one element, Buffalo will be able to move to the next one and progress from that way. So I think there's a, there's a lot of options open to them. Uh, Cleveland at Kansas City. We've gone for Kansas City across the board. Cleveland, obviously big win against Pittsburgh there last week. First playoff win for them in a long time. KC coming off. The bye week and effectively coming off three weeks of rest at this point as uh, most of the starters did not play in the week 17 game as the seeding had already been locked up. Andy Reid is traditionally devastating off a bye. Uh, They score a lot of points. His Cleveland defense has not been up to snuff this year at all. They've had a number, I think it's, is it two or three different quarterbacks? Yeah, two, I think this year, Dak Prescott and Ben Roethlisberger both put up over 500 yards on this Cleveland defense. I imagine that KC will be able to do something similar unless they tighten it up. Pass rush is a little bit softer there as well. And Cleveland's loss of interior line of, of, of linemen and then the potential injury slash loss of more linemen with uh, Conklin and Dunn doesn't bode fantastically well as Chiefs don't have the highest rate of sacks but I think they have like the third highest rate of QB pressures and and uh, and, and rushes so like if there's a weakened offensive line that's going to harm the run that, their hope is the run game that the Chiefs have not been great against the run game in terms of yardage. They've been good at stopping it in short yardage, but they tend to give up a lot of yards on the ground. But I, I find it hard to not see a bit of a, you know, maybe maybe there's 10 minutes of rust at the start of KC trying to coming back after taking a break, but I can't see them not putting up a lot of points here. And I'm not sure if Cleveland will be able to keep up. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting. Cleveland... Like their front, they obviously, their defensive front, they lost Olivier Vernon. That's a big loss. Didn't make too much of a difference this week, but the defense didn't really have to be the, the star this week against Pittsburgh. And obviously we've seen that the formula that, that's been used against the Chiefs at the back end of the season by teams like Atlanta is basically rush four and then put everyone else into coverage or even just rush three and put everyone else into coverage. So that's, I don't think that's really what Cleveland have, have traditionally done this year. Um, as a defense, they, they've played, I think, a bit more man and stuff like that. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see whether Cleveland basically decide to go and follow that formula, just like cover everything up, make sure you don't give up any deep, deep drops, and then like rely that Patrick Mahomes, because he wants to make big plays, will try, will drop too deep into the pocket to take those 10 step 
uh, dropbacks that he sometimes is, he tends to do. And, you know, just, you know, if, if he's that far back long enough, then a, a defensive head can just go around the tackle and get to him eventually. And I think that's, you know, that, that's really what they need. Like they can get with defense, but they just, I don't know if they have the depth at linebacker or secondary where they've had a lot of injuries and they they don't really have that much talent in the first place is enough to really to get that done um but maybe that would be enough to slow down KC which is really what it's done it hasn't really stopped KC but it's slowed them down and that that's all you can really hope to do really but of course then you know we kind of talked about it when 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 KC wrapped up the number 1 seed is that uh, you know after three weeks Andy Reid Pat Mahomes they've been you know in the lab they've been talking they're going can we beat them if they do that and it'll be really you know fascinating to see whether Andy Reid who obviously as you said his reputation off the bye has figured that out and gone this is what we need to do this is how we beat this this is where the weaknesses are you know this is what we need you Pat to do we need you to do more slants more quick throws stuff like that and you know soften them up run the ball a bit more I don't know what they need to do you know, I'm not Andy Reid so I'm not going to play know what to do but <laughs> You know, the, like what they do to soften it up and do that. And, you know, obviously, I think because it's Kansas City, because it's Pat Mahomes, because they're Super Bowl defending champions and what they've done, you, you have to trust that they will get this done. They will put up enough points and Cleveland can't do it. Um, but I do think, you know, there is a defensive template there. As you mentioned, the run game, if they can get that going, that can control the clock. And hopefully it's an entertaining game and not a blowout. But, uh, yeah, Cleveland are playing with house money. But Kansas City, they're just so irresistible. Even when they played poor, play poorly, they've won games, and it's hard to see Cleveland having enough to undo that in the uh, divisional round. Yeah, I mean the 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 big problem. I mean, I would love to see Cleveland win, and uh, I mean, I'll be cheering for them. But the secondary uh, is just not going to be able to keep the Chiefs from scoring. I mean, they could end up scoring forty points if, if Mahomes gets in the mood. And as much as Cleveland then can perhaps re- reply through the run game, etc., they're just not going to be able to keep pace. You can't beat Kansas City in a shootout. Um, very few teams are able to, to keep up that kind of level. Um, so I just can't see, given where Cleveland's, we- Cleveland's weaknesses seem to kind of align straight into the, the Kansas City's strengths. Uh, and in that kind of situation, it's hard to see anything except uh, a KC victory. Yeah, like if they get Chubb and Hunt going well on the ground and they kind of mix it in a lot and kind of almost play like a lead on that Tennessee style, then start taking those deep shots, they could hang in it for a bit, but I just feel that it will break. Just a quick update again, some more breaking news. After we discussed the trade, obviously they have been listening to us. Uh, Texans have officially requested an interview with Eric Bieniemy now to try and appease uh, Watson. I'm <laughs> we guessing. We call that a peace offering. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, based on the anti-tampering policy, the interview window for Bieniemy is now closed, so they aren't allowed <laughs> to interview him until either the Chiefs lose or they win the Super Bowl. So. Uh, mm. They've left it too late to get an interview, but hopefully this is them starting How to build convenient. bridges. How convenient. How <laughs> convenient indeed. But Dumpster yeah. fire extraordinary. Uh, so look, I, I, I'm looking forward to this game. And I also, I've got, I've got that nice little addition of, look, if the Chiefs do somehow manage to lose this game, like the Browns are the other team who I want to be cheering for. So then hopefully, uh, you know, the, if, if Chiefs don't do it, Cleveland all the way. Finally, our yeah. matchup. Uh, by the way, so I meant to say congrats to Sean. He went 6-0 and picking the playoffs last week. Uh, very good. Yeah, um, in your face. So this At is least where, two games better than both of you, if, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. Where we got uh, Tampa Bay and New Orleans is the only one we're disagreeing on this week. So uh, me and Fitz have gone for New Orleans. And Sean, you've gone for Tampa Bay. This goes against all rationality, given that, that the Saints comfortably beat the Bucks twice this year. And the second time was a bit of a shellacking. And 
I mean, you would be worried. Um, the as I talked about, the book pass defense is not quite at the level it needs to be, and if Breeze gets into form, they're going to have troubles. You would worry about the scheming. So the last, the second game they played, the Bucks tried this this kind of sh- to block out the short and medium passes and to basically dare Breeze to throw it long under the the kind of logic of he is old, therefore he can't throw long balls. Um, the reply was that that Breeze kind of uh, threw them all day long. So that plan is out the window, we would hope. And the Bucks would have a new plan of how to stop this. So, I mean, so there, there's reasons to go against this. I just have a feeling. I just have a feeling that, that, that this offense is in the groove. Tom Brady isn't going to lose. It could turn into one of these kind of quarterback shootouts. And Brady always tends to try and end up on top um, in those kind of situations. Both of these teams is kind of this season are bust, so they're going to be playing lights out, both of them. Um, but I just, I just, there's a part of me that just doesn't trust New Orleans. That the talent is there, and they've had two or three very good performances, but equally they've had twelve or thirteen performances where they haven't quite got to the level that is necessary. And you could say to a certain extent that they've been playing within themselves, and certainly there's a case to be made in terms of the Bears game that they were deliberately playing within themselves. But it just comes to me that that this team maybe is going to have an unexpected knockout blow that they, they're going to have a game where they don't quite get up into top gear and the other team performs and this might be the game uh, the books are going to be hurting a lot from the two losses especially the second one they're going to be planning for this game they're going to have ways because it's kind of a divisional matchup they're going to know each other very well they're going to have ideas and innovative ways to get at them and i just think with plus brady in the form he's in i just the, the books uh, kind of scrape it for me in terms of the prediction yeah like this should be a really exciting game uh, i think both offenses should have some at least some success and tampa bay have a really good run defense but we've seen uh, alvin kamara uh, have some success against them particularly in the short passing game which breeze obviously is more than happy to feed i'm, I'm sure that like sean payton you know this is a divisional rival this is a you know win you know this is winner takes all type of situation you know, this is probably the last, this is the last probably, um, at home. So I expect Sean Prayton to bring out all the toys, all the different things. And yeah, maybe some of that, you know, that could blow up in their face. All the Taysom Hill. (laughs) Yeah, well, all all the tail bull, like Taysom Hill bullshit, all the breeze, you know, they have Michael Thomas, I have Kamara back. And yeah, like Tampa Bay, their offense, I think their offense has elevated significantly since they played New Orleans that second time. I don't expect them to be stifled as much, even though we do know that New Orleans have a, have a, a good defense, but you know, Antonio Brown, has come along and just a small note I think Tom Brady would have taken the uh, Medal of Freedom uh, but uh, you know Antonio <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, unfortunately yes that is true <laughs> um, like Antonio Brown has added you know it took him weeks to get going but now he's get going he's just like your receiver is Antonio Brown at like maybe 90% of his efficacy that is ridiculous Chris Godwin is healthy and is just you know one of the best right runners in the league and Mike Evans is a big threat play uh, every single day so how do you deal with all those weapons it is a it is a huge quandary to have so i i like even though both these guys are like you know getting well on and breeze certainly isn't as healthy as it should be i expect hopefully one old school type shootout uh for new orleans where they go all out there's loads of points like final uh minutes 
And, you know, I think this is a 50-50 game. I'm going for New Orleans because they're at home because I think this means so much because I think this is literally the last chance saloon for New Orleans where I think Tom will be back next year because he's just going to go on forever. And, yeah, it, it's going to be... I think this could be a really, really good game. Even though the defences are good, I think these offences could find their spark and do some ridiculous stuff uh, on Sunday. Yeah, I'm expecting some fun in this one. And I agree, it could, I think it's going to be quite close. Um, Tampa Bay... If the, everything goes right, definitely could win it. I just got that feeling that New Orleans have the difference in quality of defense between New Orleans and Tampa Bay is greater than the difference in terms of offense, I think, between New Orleans and Tampa Bay if uh, both are firing on all cylinders. I think most of what I was going to say is kind of done already. But yeah, looking forward to this one. Uh, I'll be sitting up, uh, hopefully, celebrating the the, 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 the Chiefs uh, making it through to the next round as well because I think this is the last game of the evening. But yeah, it should be good. So that'll wrap us up with our previews for the coming week. Uh, what about yourselves, guys? Are we all just living indoors and doing absolutely nothing? Yep, yeah, pretty much. But yeah, oh, I think, right. you know, having a bit of NFL should should be some, uh, you know, at least fun yeah. uh, distraction for now. And, yeah, uh, no, no, no. A, These are some really good, fun games. And uh, except possibly the Rams game. I'm not that looking forward to that much. But uh, the other three, I'm very excited to watch. Yeah, this is a lovely slate. Very, very, very good. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an awful pity. This is like the perfect set of games for like, you know, meeting up with people for beers and watching them if it wasn't for the fucking <laughs> COVID. I finally understand what you've taken from me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I suppose that'll wrap us up as always. Firing messages on Facebook and Twitter and all those kind of places. Uh, but for now, it's bye from myself, bye from Roman. Bye. Bye from Sean. Bye. This has been all four quarters. Thanks for listening and we'll chat to you next week.